Hello, and welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is webinar episode 123, The Song of God. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including books, MP3s, and videos, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you all, and I trust that you had a very blessed Thanksgiving and all of these holiday days throughout the world, whatever the particular holiday is that you celebrate where you are, um, may the Lord richly bless you in it all. I want to continue looking at Luke's Gospel in chapter 15, and I I hope that many of you have read and reread that chapter. As I said a few weeks ago, I have spent over half a century, literally, meditating and praying over this one chapter, and there is so much here. And what I want to again emphasize, which we have been doing, I want to go back and look at these key phrases, because there are four parables here, and in each parable the same chord is struck. And the first one, which is about the shepherd who lost his sheep and goes to find it, when he finds it, he calls together his friends and neighbors, says verse 6, and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then um, the woman who lost the coin, when she finds the coin again, same words, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And this word rejoice, which is essentially a Bible word, we don't use it too much in ordinary English today, but it is an extravagant word. It means joy, gladness, um, excitement that must be released. And so essentially it's a physical word. It addresses dancing, it addresses clapping, it addresses... Address is singing. It, 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 it's in the wrong word. You, you have the idea of any way in which you can express uh, vocally or physically your inner joy and gladness. A very strong word in the scripture. When we come into the story that everybody knows of the prodigal son, um, and the father responds to the son as he comes home and says, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. And that, again, is a word which we don't use very much today, but it speaks of laughter and song and dancing and and... and feasting, merriness of a person. And so we've got to rejoice, rejoice, and then be merry. And then finally, in the fourth parable to the elder brother, who is so angry at the joy and the merriment, and the father says to him, "Um, we had to be, we just had to be, Mary and rejoice, the two words put together there. For this brother of yours was dead and has no longer, and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. So rejoice, be merry, be merry and rejoice. You could, you could say that if, if this were a symphony, that, that you had the first strain, the, the first notes of rejoice. And then as, as the, the music progresses, you hear it a little stronger, uh, and then a little stronger yet until the grand finale of the feasting. And you might say that the grand finale is what Jesus was doing 
that caused him to tell these stories. He is sitting at a feast, a party, with the worst sinners in town, those who were totally rejected by anybody with any sort of decency, and he's sitting with them as the sound of laughter and joy of people enjoying each other and, and their party. And so this, this <laughs> I, I think I, I've been drawn to this one chapter for over half a century because th- this, this was pivotal. I, I have said, and I say it again, it was because of what Jesus was doing here that ar- enraged and aroused the religious leaders to such a degree that this was in effect the beginning of what led to his crucifixion. They could not stand this. They were outraged. They were horrified that the one that they were saying was a teacher, a holy person, one God was with him. They had to grudgingly admit it. But at this, if he was sitting, rubbing shoulders with the worst sinners in town, Eating, which in those days was some sort of covenant of friendship and and saying, I I stand with you. Um, the, The Pharisees, the religious leaders said, enough, enough, we cannot stand this. And it would lead to his crucifixion. And that that's and what what were they so angry about? It, it was not only that he was with tax collectors, it was what he was doing with them. They, they, if, if Jesus had only been angry with the tax collectors, if he had been threatening them, judging them, hanging them over damnation unless they changed, then the Pharisees would have applauded him. But he is sitting with them and he's sitting with them in an atmosphere of merriness and rejoicing acceptance and that that is what set everything off and and so jesus in these parables he, he's telling the pharisees why he's sitting with these people he he's telling the pharisees why it is that there is joy Rejoicing, merriment, gladness. And, and in a sense, he was saying, you could sum up the whole chapter by saying that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you see these people as hated, despised, pariah dogs that no decent person can be with. But I, who am the visible presence of God, I... He is, Jesus is the exact image of God. He is God from God. And he says, but I see these same persons that you are hating and and, and saying we, we could never, in our righteousness, we could never associate with them. Jesus said, well, I see them as precious I see them as lost sheep. I see them as lost coins that are so valuable to the owner. I see them as sons that have broken relationship and are wandering in a meaningless maze, searching for love in all the wrong places. You see... We've got to understand this. Jesus is radical. Jesus is, he shocks us to the roots of our being. And if Jesus hasn't shocked you, then maybe you haven't really met him yet. You see, the God of religion, by which I mean that list of rules that are devoid of life by which in the keeping of them we are told we please God because God in that kind of religion he, he's seen 
as judge. That's where they begin with, with judge. But they're, they're even off there because they don't use the word judge as it's used in the scripture. They use the word judge as in a law court in our Western world. And, and so the very nature of this God invented by religion, he must reject the unrighteous. He must, but by the very nature that the, the, these religions ha- have made him in character, in nature, he, he must abhor the sinner and, and, and he must expel them and torment them and punish them. He must. Because that's where they begin. That's their starting point. He's the judge. And he's given the rules. And we've broken the rules. And therefore the judge must judge us. That's where religion, that kind of religion begins. But you see, the biblical word, when you read in the scripture the word judge and justice, it, it has a totally different idea. When... When God judges, it, it's not simply to punish and tell you, you know, you've got to pay your dues. It's always with a redemptive view. The, the word justice in the scripture means basically to set things right. That's what it means. Justice. The judge comes into a situation where everything is wrong. But as judge, meeting out justice, he is going to set things right. It's got in it the ideas of restoration, bringing things back to the point where it all went wrong, and then renewing it, as it would be another word, or to the point uh, when you're dealing with God, he, he's the recreator. He's the one who makes the world over because it is so messed up. It has in it the idea of healing a a situation that has become broken. Big difference, isn't it? Even if we were to use the term judge and justice, it would be that love judges, love is justice and wills not just to punish, but to set things right, bring back to wholeness. The the God of religion is is always angry. You know, he just that's the way he is. You know, one of those people. Every time you meet them, they find something to be angry about. You can clean the house to perfection, at least in as best you knew how. And they come with their white gloves to, to find you missed that. And that, that, that's, you know those people, don't you? Impossible to please. And so the, these people, bless their hearts, that's how they see God. The idea of a relationship with him, they're scared spitless of him. He's eternally upset with us. The the idea that God is with us, God is watching, is terrifying. Because he's, he's watching us degrade us. And when he looks over my life, it's with a cosmic frown. He's displeased with us. You get the idea, don't you, that when Jesus said that he is the perfect and final explanation of God within our humanity, that he's not just a prophet, he is God, coming from God to explain God and to do God among us. And what does he do? (laughs) He's laughing. He's rejoicing. He's showing extreme gladness with people that all the religious have given up 
and, and make a, a, in fact, is part of their joy to damn these people publicly. No. You see, the God of religion, in terms of us, is almost emotionless. He, he impersonal. I, but Jesus, he reveals the Father in terms of delighting in us. You know, there's a story, and this is almost an aside, I'll be very quick, but do you remember Elijah in the Old Testament? And he obviously, from the context of the stories, he looked very much like, like a minister of God. He, he looked every bit like a prophet from God. And, and do you remember he went to the widow of Zarephath? Do you remember that? And, and as he turned up on her property... She recognized the way he was dressed and the way he looked. He, he was a prophet. Her first reaction was, you've come to expose my sins. Uh, she could not think of a minister without thinking of her warped and distorted image of God. You've come to judge me. I've heard, and I, 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 yes, I, and I think most of you who are ministers in any way, shape, or form, people treat you oddly, don't they? They, they, they treat you as weird. When I used to travel a lot, and, and you're sitting on a plane, and the person next to you says, well, what do you do? I would get around, I'd, I'd never say I was a pastor, preacher, teacher, minister because immediately they disappear into the new york times they don't want to talk no don't no they because any any idea they have of god and embodied in a minister is to judge me they don't want to talk i i i used to say i I've got a strange job. I said, I go around the world teaching people the very source of all joy and gladness and freedom. I got their attention. Jesus revealed God in such a fashion that it was horrific. And I'm, I'm groping for words here because I want you to feel the punch of it. What, what, what Jesus revealed, this is what God is like. It, it was blasphemous. It was horrifying to the religious leaders. I mean, if you're having a problem with what I'm saying, read through the Gospels. You'll find out that it turns up all over the place. That God, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, He loves you loves you with passionate love, with, with limitless emotion. And what some people find even more difficult is he likes you. And both those words are used in the New Testament. That, that he not only loves you, which we would use the word agape in the Greek language, but he, he likes you. He has a great fondness for you, phileo. And it's used of the Father's relationship to you and I. He likes you. And this chapter, which is reflected all over the New Testament, but so plainly said in these stories, he enjoys you. He delights in you. Please, this is your God who is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, a God who wants our company. He wants to be with us. We don't have to pass an exam in order to get a place beside him at the table. He sat down with tax collectors. And, as I said briefly, and I've said it before in the last couple of weeks, that to to eat to eat with anyone in bible days and in third world countries today is to enter into it, it's a covenant I, it, I was going to say a mini covenant but it has all the ideas of covenant we are going to stand together 
If I eat with you, then I am binding myself to you as your friend, and I'm going to, when, when you are filled with joy, then I'm filled with joy, and when you are shamed, I stand with you in your shame. We, we've eaten together. So by eating with these people, Jesus was honoring them. Yes. You see, I don't think we've ever fathomed what it means for God so loved the world. The world is this place of screwed up people, you and I. He loves us. And to love someone is to honor them and to like them and enjoy them and want to be with them. Tis you I speak of now as I speak truly of myself. God love honors us. He does not honor our sin. But he is honoring us and saying you are of such value. You have such worth. You were worth it. You, you, you and I, we were worth it. For God to come into our death wilderness to seek us, to find us, to save us, to restore us. The the tax collectors felt that. You know, long before anybody explains things like this, you can feel it. You can feel when you're accepted. You can feel when you're loved and delighted in. And so the tax collectors were drawn to Jesus. Again, to the horror uh, of the religious leaders. And actually, to most of the decent folk in town. These tax collectors were, were rejected by all. And for very good reasons in in all our way of looking at things. But they're drawn to Jesus. They feel safe. They feel accepted. And into the tormenting darkness of where they live, there comes a light of hope. Or if I'm going to use these parables that Jesus told, describing why he was sitting with them, then I would say into their tormenting darkness they heard the song of God, the song of love, the song of delight, rejoice with me, I have found my sheep. Found my sheep. I'm aware that some people are upset with this. There's Pharisee in all of us. It's very hard for 21st century believers to understand that the serious business of God is joy. Do you understand me? The serious business of God is laughter for sheer joy over you and I that he has found us in Christ. Uh, what is it in Zephaniah, um, that, that prophet, chapter 4, I believe, where, where, where it says that God, and this is Old Testament, but it says he rejoices over us with singing. What a statement that, that God, the Lord, Father and Son and Holy Spirit rejoices over us with singing. He will be quiet in his love. The picture is of a nursing mother crooning her love song over the baby, lullabying it to sleep. Perfect safety, protected in her arms. And God says that's... That's you and I. Oh yes, it's it's God's song of joy, the going forth of His love, is the ultimate 
harmony, the ultimate melody that is the ultimate healing that brings our tormented souls into harmony. It's a creative melody. The song creates and recreates. And lest anyone should think I'm totally off, um, you, you've got two images of God's love in the Scripture. And the the one that you might say we first meet after the fall is that God grieves over mankind, that, that he sorrows at what man has done. The, the purpose for which you and I were created, the, the potential of a human in relationship with God, a universe beyond our comprehension, or as the prophet said, eye has not seen nor ear heard. It's never been conceived in the mind of man. The plans, purposes of God that are for those who love him, And when we go into the madness of sin, the scripture portrays God as sorrowful, which which might come to a head in Jesus as he stood over Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is the, the Jerusalem that in a few days was going to crucify him, and he wept over Jerusalem. And the, the word wept there means uh, great convulsive sobs. He wept, his very guts in upheaval, weeping over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Right on into the epistles where it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit. The tears of God. But what does God do with those tears? What does he do with his grief? (laughs) Yes, weeping, truly feeling the horror of what we have done, become. He then pursues us to sing to us the song of his love and to draw us back to himself. You know, here on our ranch in Texas, we have llamas, and um, they're different kind of animals. And one of their unique characteristics, you know for sure that the llama is pregnant because she begins to sing to the unborn llama within her. And, and the song of the llama is a, it's a hum, but it's melodious. And, and if you're around them and you hear one of them humming this, this loud, melodious hum, she is singing to the unborn lama. And when the lama is born, uh, that humming song is the connection between them. And I have seen when a baby lama has been lost, not seriously, but lost to mother and you you hear the mother llama humming it's it's the song that's going out into the lostness of the baby and then when the baby hears that hum that there's a rapport the the baby knows that's where i belong it was in that song that i was born and and that song means provision and protection and the the baby runs to the hum of the mother yeah <laughs> we, we were created for the song of the father 
that was revealed in the life and person of Jesus that is brought into us by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's true melody. Sin, you see, is disharmony. Wherever you touch sin, it is disharmony. It is off-key. It's like the screech of a ragged piece of steel across concrete. It's nails scratching on the glass. There's something. It it tears you apart. There is no harmony in Satan. And there is no true song in this world. It's got the ache It's got the pain. It's the disharmony of the human race. But out from God comes harmony and melody of God love that calls to every heart. And somewhere deep within us, we know for this we were born. And we're drawn to him. And then we order our life around God's song. And we become part of his song that is sung into the world. So, the key to these parables, the words rejoice and be merry. Yes, but why does he rejoice and be merry? Because he has found the sheep, the coin, the son that was lost. And... Many of you have heard me talk about this before, but I just have to give it a couple of minutes. The word lost, again, when the kind of religion that the Pharisees were, when they would use the word lost, and you'll hear the same thing in the same kind of religious talk today, lost means beyond hope. Oh, they're lost, they're lost. And... and, it's said so many times with a religious pride that, that it, it's us and them. They're the lost. Well, I mean, use it as you will, but that's not the meaning of the word. Even in English, that's not the meaning of the word. Look, when when you say that something or someone is lost assuming that you had the barest understanding of English, which of course is increasingly difficult to find these days, but it means something or someone of great worth. Someone or something that is precious is now not where it or they should be. Did you get it? Look, I have here a pen. I think when we ordered these, we got about 5,000 of them. And if you've been to our retreat, we, we threw one in your envelope. And, you know, anyone who comes to visit, we give them one of these. Uh, do you know I've never lost one of these? Though, in actual fact... I've probably gone through about a hundred or two hundred of them. But you see, you don't lose them. They disappear from my desk. They fall out of my pocket. They, they're gone. But I'd never say I lost it. I, it. There's, I mean, no real value to this. It's a piece of plastic with some sort of ink inside of it. And... and that's it. They go missing. But we don't stop to look for it. Not that. Now I have other pens. And, and yes, such pens as I have, everybody has to stop and look. When a child goes missing, the entire town stops. You see... Everybody now is engaged in the search because someone of supreme value, of great worth, has gone missing, is not where should be. Now we use the term lost. A child is lost. 
precious piece of art is lost. Ah, there you see. You get the point when Jesus said the word lost. I rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that that sheep was of supreme value. Supreme value. This is my son. He was lost and he's found. My son, precious, precious, filled my dreams and my hopes this long time. Precious, couldn't, couldn't settle in to live without him. He was lost, precious. The precious has been misplaced, is in the wrong place and needs to be brought back to the proper place. The one that is of great, limitless worth to me has been separated from me. A relationship which is my very blood relationship. The relationship has been broken, dislocated. So that's how Jesus looked at the tax collectors. That's how Jesus, that's how the Father who sent Jesus, that's how the Holy Spirit whom the Father sent to tell you of Jesus That's how the Holy Three look at you and I. And and these parables, you know, just, uh, they're all sort of upturning the whole world, aren't they? Uh, The shepherd has to go off into the wilderness and risk his life in a geography of death to find the sheep. The woman, it goes into great detail with the woman who turned the whole jolly house out to find one little coin. And of course the father who runs down the road making a fool of himself in that society, who kills a fatted calf, calls the whole village together, confronts the elder brother. It's it's all this sort of volcanic activity in these stories. Why? Jesus is saying the effort, the sacrifice involved to find that which is lost reveals how precious and of such worth the lost item is. (laughs) You see what I mean? The more your world is turned upside down to find it, then the more it's worth finding more precious. Oh yes, the laughter is I found my precious. The laughter, the song, the dance, the merriment of God is that which is of limitless worth. I have found my child. Of course, when we say lost in terms of the one that is lost, you see, that, that's the, I've just been talking about the word lost as the one who has lost something. That's what they mean by it. But if you are the one that's lost, it means that you don't know where you are. So you, you are aimlessly wandering And essentially, there's no path. If there was a path that led out, then you wouldn't be lost. But lost means that you're going in circles. It means that you you can't get a handle on the why and the where and the what of where you are. The tragedy when it comes to the kind of lost in the Scripture the persons who are lost and you and I have been lost outside of Jesus and the persons lost in the scripture are those who are totally committed to the idea that they're not lost. They continually go off in circles believing that they're going to stumble on the path of ultimate meaning and purpose. So they're they're committed to their pointless circles. 
that they continually encourage themselves by saying that life is really here, right in my flesh and createdness. So they're never going to find their way out. Not that there is the way out, but, (laughs) you know, until a person says they need help, until a person says, I'm lost. They, they're like the the fellow that we looked at in the far country. He, he he'll go all the way to the pigs before he has an idea that there might be another way. So what what does the in, in the that first parable? Because all these parables they speak into each other. The the owner of the sheep, the shepherd. He's both the shepherd and the owner. He talks of it as, I have found my sheep which was lost. What's he going to do? Which, of course, that's part of the question we ask. We ask the question, what is God like? And then you're going to say, what will God do? From the beginning of the scripture, in Genesis 3, when mankind sinned, and went over to Satan's side. What is God the Creator going to do? In contrary to what religion would read into it, God takes the initiative. Love takes the initiative. The initiative to go where the sheep is. Even as the woman went where the coin was, in the dirt. Lost among the furnishings of the house. The father runs down the road to fling his arms around the returning boy. He goes where the boy is. The initiative, God's initiative to go where we are in order to restore, to bring us back to the relationship with his love for which we were created, to reconcile. We need to be reconciled to God. He runs in order to heal the broken relationship. The shepherd did not go into the wilderness to make an announcement to the sheep. He did not go to tell the sheep you're lost. He didn't go to tell the sheep that if you go down this pathway and um, look for the third rock on the right and turn left and keep going. No, no, no. I know that sounds stupid, but it's a very important point. You see, the shepherd is not described as saying, okay, I found you, now I'm going to go, and I want you to follow me out of this wilderness. No. Nor nor does he threaten the sheep with a good whack on the side of the head for his stupidity. Nothing. You see, into that sheep's lostness, into that treacherous wilderness of death, for the sheep was as good as dead in that wilderness, if not from starvation, it would be from the predators. And, of course, the danger, uh, the the loose rocks on the sides of those precipices, and, and the shepherd has come into that death to lay hold upon the sheep. The shepherd's presence, do you, do you understand this? If you can give some sort of cognition to the sheep to just see that shepherd, the very presence of the shepherd was the sound of the song The sound of the shepherd's voice had a rapport inside the sheep. He'd known that voice since born. And the disharmony, the chaos 
of the wilderness suddenly becomes apparent at the sound of the shepherd's voice. I say the song which brought everything into melody, everything into harmony. Everything was okay. The sound of the shepherd's voice, the crunch of his boot on the rocks was the sound of life. That shepherd hit him he carefully entered into the wilderness. That sheep was so valuable, so precious, the shepherd will enter into the wilderness, as I say again, of death. He'll go into that treacherous danger, even to himself. I'm not just talking to sheep. Any fool who goes into that wilderness is asking for death. In so doing, have you thought about this? In so doing, the shepherd treads the path of the sheep. He is going on the same pathway that the sheep went on, goes into that same zone that the sheep had gone into. Now, when the sheep walked that pathway, it was aimless. You could hardly call it walking, it was wandering aimlessly from one patch of grass to the next, to the next thing that was giving curiosity, just an aimless meandering, pointless, and all of it wrapped up in independence from the shepherd. Now the shepherd walks that same path, but does so with strong purpose. He knows the danger, unlike the sheep, who thought he's having a great time. He knows the lurking death of that wilderness. But because of how he looked at that sheep, he enters into that wilderness and he retraces the history of the sheep. He follows in... Exactly where the sheep had gone, he puts his feet. He is retracing the history of the sheep. And with every step he took, why are you here? This is idiotic that you should risk your life in this place. It's only a sheep for goodness sake. But every step said no to the way of the sheep. Every step said no to the very path on which he walked. This is not the purpose for which the sheep was birthed. You see, I'm coming to get you urgent love. I will not let you go. You could say the shepherd in thus going into the wilderness and treading the history of the sheep He crosses the great divide. He goes where the sheep is. He connects with the sheep. He doesn't wait on the edge of the wilderness, waiting for a change of mind in the sheep. He's he's not just waiting for what will never happen, that... The sheep would just happen to hit the right pass. No, he's going. He crosses the divide. He is going where the sheep is to lay hold of that sheep. And he doesn't carry a rod to beat the sheep. He carries a rod to protect the sheep from predators. To find the sheep and to return and restore the sheep. You could say... This is the great exchange. He is going where the sheep is in order that the sheep may come where he is. That's why he was sitting with the tax collectors at the table, putting his hand in the same breadbasket and saying, We stand in solidarity together. The Pharisee, the religious leaders, 
their message would be clean up. Get your life together. Be like us. And then after we're satisfied that a change has taken place, you may perhaps sit with us. Jesus said, I'm coming where you are. I'm laying hold. I'm connecting. And my heart sings the song of God's love. And when he comes where the sheep is, when he found the sheep, when he's gotten inside the lostness of the sheep, when he has settled into the dislocation of the sheep, the very presence, I say again, the very presence of the shepherd was the song of love. Already it's there. I have found my sheep. I have come where the sheep is. And as far as the sheep was concerned, it is not lost anymore. It is still in the wilderness, in the lostness. But the presence of the shepherd meant no more lost. The shepherd is the way out of the wilderness. The shepherd is the end of being lost. Okay, And as I said, he didn't give the sheep directions. Rather, he picked up the sheep. And it's an amazing sight. If ever you go to Israel, you can see it out there on the hills. But um, they put the sheep around his neck. Yeah, that, that's what it says. Put it around his neck. Have you thought about it? He, he made the sheep a sort of scarf. So, so the legs of the sheep were here, and the head of the sheep was here, and, and, and there he's got it. That is, although the sheep is the sheep and the shepherd is the shepherd, they have become functionally one. You will not find any sheep tracks leading out of the wilderness. You will only find shepherd tracks. Because they have become one now and the history of the shepherd has become the history of the sheep. He's found it. And finding it means they have become one together. Oh, if you haven't recognized it, then forgive me, I should have maybe stopped along the way. But do you recognize here the gospel? Jesus it's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God connecting, God joining us. In fact, have you noticed something? Jesus said he was the shepherd. But what's the greatest title of Jesus in the New Testament? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right through to the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb. But just a minute. The Lamb is part of the flock. I, I, I thought you said Jesus was the shepherd. Yes. Because in the case of the reality that these parables were talking about, this shepherd, the shepherd so connected with us, he became a sheep in the flock, became one of us. In fact, not only one of us, but lamb. And in the Greek language of the New Testament, it is dear little lamb. Speaking of fragility and helplessness, and God became totally one of us and joined with us joined with us. He came right into our real death, not parable death, right into our death. He joined us there and he put us on his shoulders. That is, he became so one with us. There's only one track out. Jesus rose from the dead and he tracked his way out of death but in tracking his way out of death, we were there. You and I were there around his shoulders. He carried us out. You see, the shepherd is the sheep's history. And Jesus is your history. He's carried us out. Carried us out. 
The shepherd reversed. Reversed. The, he's, he's, he trod the sheep's pathway and then the sheep trod his pathway out. I, I hope you're, you're getting this. It's incredible. In Titus, the little book of Titus, it says the grace of God, grace of God. And then it talks about the kindness of that grace. The kindness of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And that word appeared, it, it, it would be a word that as the sun just comes over the horizon in the morning, it sort of peeps up and then it's out over the horizon and spread sudden light across the horizon. Uh, that, that's the word, it appeared. It, it, it's when a head peeps over the top of the rocks. It, it's right here, the shepherd suddenly comes over the rocks and there's the sheep. And Paul in Titus, he says, this kindness, this goodness, this grace of God has appeared. Suddenly, life has come. Laughter fills the chaos and disharmony. Now, running through these stories is another word which we'll get to one of these days but the word is repent there's there's this joy in heaven over the one who repents and as i've said and i don't have time to say it again except very quickly it's one of the most distorted twisted words in the new testament Uh, the word means to change your mind it's come to mean you'll beat your breast over your behavior and weep and howl and feel despair. But it doesn't. It means to change your mind. There's more joy in heaven when, when you and I, we, we emerge out of the darkness into the light and we change our mind about who God is. And we wonderfully fall out of step with the Pharisees. We are walking now to the beat of truth, which is utterly unlike what they taught us. We change our mind about God. And that, that's, I, I could just say that for another hour. Till we, you change your mind. He's not what you've been taught. He's not what Satan said he is. He's the shepherd. He's the woman. He's the father. This is what God is like. And he, he's appeared to, to some of you. He's, he's appeared in the last hour. You come into your life. and you're with, this, is, this is God. If I, if I could give personality to the sheep, the sheep is saying, is this the one I ran away from? But of course then you change your mind about yourself because you recognize that he laid hold upon you and he carried you home. You've been living your life in the darkness and the lie and the illusion. Faith is resting in that truth. Resting in the truth of who he is and therefore who you now are because of who he is. You see, especially in that last one of the prodigal son and the elder brother, there's no end to that story. Have you noticed? I don't know what happened to either of them. The last I saw of the prodigal son, he's off into the party and the the elder brother, I don't know, they're standing in the courtyard and the story ends. How, what's this about, you see? What happened to the sheep next? I don't know. Because the, this chapter of the, these lost things, it's our story. This is my story. This is what God has done in me, in Jesus Christ. It's... Now we, we respond. We, we, amen, yes, that is the way it is. We hear him say to us, rejoice with me. Come to my party, which I've thrown in honor of you. 
and heaven, real heaven, I mean heaven which on our timeline is called future, but it begins right now with the Holy Spirit bringing the song of God into our heart. Well, there it is. Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. For the Lord your God, who is in your midst, one with you, sings over you, rejoices over you, and rocks you in his arms in his great love. And now the blessing of God, who is this unfathomable, unconditional, incredible love, that God bless you by opening the eyes of your understanding to discover who you really are in that love in Christ Jesus. So I bless you. So it is.